Tetelestai. It is finished. Tetelestai is an incredible word, and not just because it sounds great, but for the multitude of meanings and implications wrapped up in it. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. This is a special Easter podcast, but with applications that go far beyond Easter. In many Easter sermons, we're reminded that Jesus' final word from the cross, as recorded in John, was tetelestai, it is finished. The meaning is clear, but let's spend a few minutes looking at it more deeply and the implications and applications for us with Jesus' cry. First of all, what was finished when Jesus cried tetelestai, as his last words from the cross? In brief, now finished was the work of our salvation, the healing of the breach with our Creator. The price of our redemption was paid. Peace with God was accomplished. It was the ending of a story thousands of years in the making. The making of this story is one of the reasons why I encourage everyone to read their Bibles in chronological order. The story of redemption is progressive, and if you don't read it in order, you don't really see that. But if you do read it chronologically, you're able to clearly see God's work through the ages. Now, let me review it for you, but just before I do, I need to remind you that on Bible 805, I've got reading plans and all sorts of things that will help you do it. So I'm not just telling you, oh, do this without having a way for you to do it. But back to the history of the Old Testament. In the beginning, humanity was created to walk with God in a perfect paradise forever. They lived in peace and harmony with each other, their creator, and their world. But somehow, some way, that wasn't enough for them. They wanted the one thing God told them they could not have. They were warned, but they took it anyway. Their actions introduced death and evil into the world. The consequences of their actions were far more terrifying and far-reaching than they could have foreseen or than they could really comprehend even after they happened. But the same God who created them understood completely what they'd done. He also knew Adam and Eve on their own could not do anything to right what had gone wrong. There was no do-over. Sorrow and regret had no effect on the consequences. They were inevitable. Humanity could never heal the rift they created. But just as the consequences of sin are inevitable, it was also inevitable as part of the character of God that He would respond in grace and love. Because of that, The same God told Adam and Eve the judgment for their sins. At the same time, he also promised that one day salvation for them would come and the breach would be healed. From Genesis to Jesus' cry of Tetelestai, the Bible tells a story of how God worked out that salvation throughout human history. Thousands of years intervened. The Old Testament tells a story of how God focused on one man, Abraham, and one people, Israel, as his living messengers, that he was not finished with humanity, that he was working out a plan of salvation. But, and I have a lot of questions that I'm going to ask in this podcast, why, my first one is, why did it take so long? 
why the millennia of the stories of humanity struggling, suffering, why the pain and death, why the horrors and tragedies. God, we're told, is an all-powerful God, and I believe that. So why couldn't he simply make it better, completely right after the fall? If you really love someone, don't you give them what they want as soon as you can? Well, we obviously know the answer to that is no. Anyone who cares for a child knows if you give a child, or really anyone in any other relationship in in your life, what they want immediately when they want it. All the time, you end up with a very spoiled child. But I think more than a lesson in good child rearing is going on here. There are some aspects of the character of God that he will not violate, even though one of his characteristics is that he's all-powerful. He cannot lie. He cannot quit acting in love. There are limits he will not violate that, quite honestly, we can't comprehend. Perhaps the long story of salvation was what it was, is what it is, because it could not be any other way. Perhaps it's taken so long from our human viewpoint to illustrate in a way that nothing could the immensity of evil in that choice to turn away from God, and at the same time the immensity of grace from our loving God to work through history the long-term plan of salvation. Whatever the reason, the story of humanity's salvation had a predetermined ending, and when Jesus died on the cross, he declared it with the cry, Tetelestai, it is finished. Now, scholars and commentators have made much of this term, teltelestai. Now, some have commented that it was a word that was used to mark the cancellation of debts and how the death of Christ paid the debt we owed to God. That debt was, of course, illustrated in the many years of the sacrificial system through the thousands of years of Jewish history where an innocent lamb was sacrificed as a temporary covering, as a temporary payment, and Jesus was the final payment for sin. But no more sacrifices, of course, were necessary after Jesus died because the debt was paid. Even the grammar of this word, tetelestai, illustrates the finality of Jesus' actions. It is in the Greek aorist tense, which means that it defines an action that took place in a point in time and has consequences that continue indefinitely. Jesus' death on the cross was a one-time action, the effects of which last forever. Now, all of the above commentary is accurate about the Greek word tetelestai, and the meanings just mentioned are what the readers of the Greek New Testament would have understood from the word itself. But here's another question and a picky little issue that's worth discussing. Though the meaning of tetelestai is accurate, the implications of it valid, and the word itself is a great reminder of the finality and glorious work of Jesus on the cross, the picky little issue is that tetelestai is not what Jesus said. It's not what he actually said. He did not speak Greek from the cross. He spoke Aramaic. 
Now, none of the Gospels are written in Aramaic. They're all written in Greek. Now, it's interesting because they do quote one phrase in Aramaic that Jesus spoke from the cross when he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a quote from Psalm 22. Now, why they quote this in Aramaic, but not Jesus' final cry, we don't know. It ultimately really doesn't matter, as the meaning is clear, and the translation of the idea into Greek is accurate. Yet, looking at the possible Aramaic word of what Jesus actually said adds additional depth and meaning to his final word. So, what did he say? One suggestion by a number of scholars is that the Aramaic phrase he actually spoke was Masalem. Now, you probably already heard what I was going to say, but the root word of this word, Salem, comes from a word we're all familiar with, Shalom, which means peace. The meaning of Shalom, of course, in the Bible isn't merely the absence of conflict, but an all-encompassing wholeness, a restoration, a tranquility. It is a way of living totally at rest with and in God. It's the kind of peace Jesus promised when he said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives, so don't be troubled or afraid. When we add the Hebrew tense to the root word, the M-A of Masalem, we could translate it in this way, the peace has been accomplished. Isn't that neat? From this we see that Masalem is a little more expansive in its meaning even than Tetelestai, as it tells us what was finished. In this case, what was finished was the conflict between humanity and their creator. We're now at peace. A relationship of peace, of shalom, was the relationship God created people to have with him in the Garden of Eden, and it is the relationship humanity will have when all things are restored in the new heaven and the new earth. That is the shalom, the peace, the masalem Jesus accomplished with his death on the cross. But I have more questions. (laughs) Now, that's all very nice, and this is a great Easter lesson, but my restless heart has another question. If the peace that was accomplished when Jesus died on the cross, um, if that was what it brought about, why aren't we experiencing it now? (laughs) The work of securing our salvation might be finished in some massively cosmic way. A struggle between humanity and God might be at peace. But when I look at my life, My daily struggles and the battles the world has been fighting, especially this last year during the pandemic, though I can't deny there are times of incredible supernatural peace in the midst of all this going on, that's not what characterizes most of my life. Or I don't think the lives of many others. Why do so many struggles continue? Why are we still fighting inside and out? Now again, part of the answer, we don't know. To refer back to my previous question of why did God take so long to work out the plan of salvation through the thousands of years of Old Testament history, also, why does he have us go through so many battles between his finished work on the cross and his wrapping up of human history? 
I've thought about this quite a bit, and though I have no idea of the answer as to why it is the way it is, I'd like to share an analogy that I've found really helpful and then some advice and challenges from the Bible on how we ought to live while our, while we're still on her earth in this in-between time. First, the analogy. Now, we're obviously involved in a war. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The chapter in Ephesians goes on with encouragements on how to arm ourselves for this battle. And the New Testament is filled with analogies of spiritual warfare. And the history of the church is filled with the history of spiritual and physical battles in the name of Christ. So, how then do we reconcile Jesus' cry of Teltelestai, of Masalem, with the often brutal battles that our lives have to fight out in the Monday after Easter? How do we reconcile these two realities? Here is what helps me. I think for Christians today, it's like it was between the time of the battle on D-Day when the Allies hit the beaches in Normandy and June 6, 1944. That would happen on June 6, 1944. But the unconditional final surrender by Germany wasn't until May 1945, almost a year later. With the Allied victory on the beaches of Normandy, Many things happened. Many things took place. It was considered one of the greatest military offensives in the history of the world. And, as historians look at it, the outcome of the war was decided at that point. It was finished. The outcome of peace was assured, but the war wasn't over. Of the many stories and battles that took place in the intervening times, I'd like to comment on two of them. The first is the story of the French Resistance, and this is one of my favorites. I love studying the French Resistance, but particularly for them in Paris. Again, D-Day was on May 7th, but Paris was not liberated until August 25th. As they had during the four years of German occupation, the French resistance had to continue to fight. They had to stay strong. They had to work hard to encourage others. Victory is coming. We will be liberated, was their message. As a church communicator, I've been fascinated by their work because communications was a huge part of it, just as important in many cases, if not more so, as their actual physical battles. They set up clandestine printing presses, they published newsletters and posters, they operated secret wireless radio channels, you might say sort of the podcasting of their day. History records that their communications kept thousands of others fighting, resisting, and ultimately victorious. But it wasn't easy. It was horrifically difficult. They knew, if they were captured, that torture, imprisonment, and death awaited them. They were not given any of the honor or the privileges of a captured soldier. And a number of them, while in prison, after they were captured, committed suicide rather than give up the names of their comrades under torture. They knew they wouldn't be able to hold out, and they would rather die by their own hand than give up their friends and the work they were doing. 
In addition to this underground resistance, there were the larger battles that were fought after D-Day. One of the biggest was the Battle of the Bulge, and I admit, I did not realize until I was rechecking my history and timelines of the war in preparing for this podcast that the Battle of the Bulge took place after D-Day. Somehow I didn't realize such a huge battle happened after D-Day. But it was the last, and, and this is really important because it's important to my family personally, which I'll tell you about in a minute. It was the last German offensive of the war. Now, History.com describes it in this way. Hitler's mid-December timing of the attack, one of the bloodiest of the war, was strategic as freezing rain, thick fog, deep snowdrifts, and record-breaking low temperatures brutalized the American troops. More than 15,000 cold injuries, trench foot, pneumonia, frostbite were reported that winter. Then, um, just my comments go on, the battle lasted over a month, and during that time, over there were over 100,000 casualties, and 19,000 died. My uncle, my father's only brother, was one of them. We have the postcard that he wrote to his family on Christmas Eve, and we have his purple heart. We never got his body back, though. They never recovered it, and my grandmother always hoped that somehow, some way, he'd come home. But he didn't. The cost paid by the resistance and the Allied army between D-Day and the end of the war were great. But not everyone paid a price at that time. Not everyone was against the Nazis. When Germany didn't fall right away, and from the time that they took over, some cooperated. They were collaborators. For a time, might made right, the easy way seemed the prudent way. The money was too good, and perhaps their fear too great. Collaboration seemed like the smart thing to do, until it wasn't. I'd love to go on and tell you lots more war stories. I love military history. My father, during World War II, fought in North Africa and in Italy. He was also part of the signal car. He was involved in communications, and he ended up as one of the mop-up troops at Hiroshima. But we need to move on. As we look at these examples of resistance in Allied armies, I'd like to share some thoughts on application. C.S. Lewis commented on this in Mere Christianity when he said, Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you're really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That sounds a lot to me like the description of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. They knew they were in enemy-occupied territory. They were not focused on this earth and what they could get out of it. As Hebrews 11.13 says, These men of faith I have mentioned died without ever receiving all that God had promised them. But they saw it all awaiting them on ahead and were glad. For they agreed that this earth was not their real home, but that they were just strangers visiting down here. Each of them was called to do work for God, and nothing mattered more than that. For the French resistance, nothing mattered more than the evil of the Nazi regime be defeated. 
The Apostle Paul had the same focus when he said, But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, if you were listening closely to that verse, you probably picked up that little phrase, finish my course, and as you might have already realized, here again is our word teleo, teltelestai. We know what it means to finish, and that's what the Apostle Paul wanted to do. Strong's Concordance expands the meaning of to finish by saying it also means to make perfect, complete, to carry through completely, to accomplish, to bring to an end, to add what is yet wanting in order to render a thing full, to bring to a close or fulfillment. What we do to finish our race isn't just about us. It touches many others. Just as those heroes of the faith, their lives touched many others. Just today, a friend of mine sent me an email reminding me of Russell Crowe in The Gladiator when he said, What we do in life echoes through eternity. How we conduct ourselves in the battles before our rightful king makes his authority known is important. What we say or do, write or speak, podcast, blog about, all the things that we do can create echoes through eternity. This Easter, as we celebrate the extraordinary redemption that is ours, because Jesus finished the work of salvation, let's not forget the war isn't over. Let's take some time to evaluate our lives. Are we engaged in a great campaign of sabotage for the kingdom of God? Or are we living as a collaborator with an earthly kingdom that will not last? Are we going along with what the world tells us is our best life now? That we deserve everything we want? That if we can dream it, we can do it? And all this assorted claptrap of affirmations that constantly push people to focus on ourselves. If we see this primary focus on ourselves, on what makes us feel good, what makes us want to get more, be more now, if we tell ourselves that later, whenever this happens or that happens or whatever, that then we'll focus on God and others and we'll do more God-centered things, if we're preoccupied with a self-focus like that while ignoring the needs of others and putting off doing what we know is important to God, that might be a sign that we're collaborating with the enemy. Again, it might be comfortable now, but it won't end well. What should we do? Well, again, let's look at the French resistance. They weren't a disorganized gang of anti-German fanatics. They had extensive training, tactics, and a code of conduct. If you're unsure of what you need to do to be a resistance fighter for the kingdom of God, your Bible will tell you. It has inspiring stories and specific advice on how to fight the good fight. And again, Bible 805 has plans and resources and inspiration to help you do it. As you read, journal about what it's telling you. Ask God to let you know what you need to do to finish your course with joy. 
attempt to look beyond the pains and pleasures of this earth to what is eternal as you set your goals and dream your dreams because probably sooner than any of us imagine the battle for each one of us will be over whether death takes you home to jesus or whether we stay around till he returns and finally liberates planet earth what will be your report to your commander-in-chief will you cringe as a collaborator or celebrate as part of the resistance army for the kingdom of god i pray we will all celebrate having fought the good fight and finished the work jesus called each of us to do with victory may we shout tell to lestai it is finished the victory is won the battle over the peace is accomplished forevermore have a joyous easter as you look forward to that day that's all for now Please check out the notes and other resources that will help you be a good resistance fighter for the kingdom of God at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow writer, pilgrim, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.